welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what a life and career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by arachnologist and science educator Benji Kessler. Benji, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, James. No worries. I have a very important question to start. Fifty Shades of Prey as a paper title. <laughs> what yep. came first, the paper title or the research idea? The research idea, okay. actually. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I, it's definitely, definitely not out of the question that I would base a research out of, oh, no, out I, of a pun idea. I ask because I have a paper that I want to write one day mm-hmm. that is... Uh, highway to the danger zone colon something something prey predator interactions and I, i'm pretty sure it started with the paper title yeah <laughs> and the idea <laughs> came from it <laughs> do you remember what this paper is on 50 shades of prey yes yeah that paper is about seeing how jumping spiders use vision to find and catch their prey okay as in there can be lots of different shades and different colors. So the sh- the it 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 was a little bit of a stretch to make the title work. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's it's not about the shades of the prey themselves, but about the lighting conditions that I have the spiders catching prey under. Mm-hmm. So I would take wild caught jumping spiders and bring them into the lab. Yeah, and using aquarium lights, I would have them attempt to catch prey or i'd put them in a situation with prey where they could catch it yeah at either bright or dim or completely dark right. light with just infrared yeah and saw how their ability to catch the prey different between the lighting treatments so is this a question about the habitats they live in themselves or about how if, we conduct research in captive environments it's not about it's not about the so this this experiment in particular was not meant to simulate natural habitats mm-hmm I, but rather to see what senses they can and do use to catch their prey right. in general. Yeah. So a lot of spiders will not rely on vision at all mm. or, or it to catch their prey and instead still you detect vibrations in the air or through the ground. Yep. And jumping spiders definitely can detect vibrations cause they use it in their, in their mating and mate choice and courtship interactions. And I wanted to see if it, in the species I was studying, if they could get along with prey capture without without using vision at all. Mm. Turns out they couldn't catch any prey in the complete darkness. Okay. And when the lights were dimmed to a certain point, they still could catch it, but it would, but there was, I, I found that there was a sort of tipping point where they could, could catch it, but their abilities were impaired. You also have another paper with, <laughs> with a pun title, which I'm guessing is similar. Uh, something about you don't have to turn the red light. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm guessing yeah. you're you're okay with paper uh, titles that have ridiculous puns in them, yeah. I yeah, I'm almost not okay with papers that don't. <laughs> Some people have very strong opinions about puns in titles. As soon as they see it on a paper, they just yeah. <laughs> Yeah. discredit the research or the researcher or something and think it's a it's little good. bit inappropriate. I, I don't need those people reading my papers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just don't see why you can't have fun with what you work on. <laughs> right, exactly. There's no point in doing science if you can't enjoy yeah. it. Yeah. 
Is there a pun you have ready and waiting for the next paper then? So the title of my whole thesis is going to be Spidey Sense and Sensibility. (laughs) (laughs) That's got... That's like a triple barrel <laughs> reference pun. I love it. Yeah, thank and you. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody said to me, it's better than spied and prejudice, which, oh. <laughs> which I appreciate it. How can you decide? It's <laughs> 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 all right, so let's let's unwrap this a little bit. First of all, uh, you don't have to turn on the red light paper. Yes. Is, is this about red lights that we use for studying spiders? Yes, that is a project that I ended up abandoning after it didn't work. Mm-hmm. After it consistently didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in which I was trying to see if red markings on the jumping spider that I study, Habernatus formosus, are necessary for mating displays. So okay. I so I used the same aquarium lights I was talking about before, mm. where individual colors can be adjusted freely and illuminated the spiders under under white light or under light that was blue looking but had the had the reds and oranges taken out so that okay. the red markings wouldn't appear red all right and the hopes t- of seeing how that would affect mating rates but it turns out the mating rates were just zero no matter what i did okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so i couldn't gather a lot of insight from yeah. that so the, the at least we know that the red itself is not like a salient something or other if you can take that out or add it in doesn't affect anything well i i can't even say that because because yeah. under any conditions they didn't mate okay still you got Ever. a cool pun title out of right I, the, that was the, <laughs> the, the pun title was uh probably the best outcome of that paper <laughs> <laughs> and so your thesis itself if i unwrap your your thesis title, Spidey Sense and Sensibility, you're looking at spider senses and how they affect their behavior, yeah, normal decisions, that's, that's right. something? Yeah, that's okay. it, yeah. it, it, The scope of my thesis ended up being more narrow that, than the title yeah. was initially. And my thesis is essentially now about how spiders use different senses, specifically vision and their vibratory senses to find and capture prey. Mm-hmm. So it is it is all about prey capture actually. Yeah. Which is not reflected in the title, but I haven't thought of a I haven't thought of a suitable pun uh, that, that can outpace outpace the one that I have right now <laughs> while being yeah, narrow, no, narrow pretty, pretty or inappropriate in scope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, well nice Spider Man's such a big deal. He, the, uh, yeah, I don't know. Talk at the Spider Verse. Sort of, there's got to be something in their whole thing. I don't know. Oh, that's true. Actually, yeah. I, j- I got myself online. I got a Spider Man costume a few weeks ago, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I thought it would be fine or just okay. And I was like, oh, I hope it fits. Mm. I put it on, and I look exactly like Spider Man. <laughs> I'm gonna. I mean, obviously, the video won't go over the podcast, but it, I would like to record your reaction. Oh yes, Let, let's bring this on to this picture of me. <laughs> Mind you, this is a me in my house. Hey, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I said you bought a costume off the internet and put it on. I just, I expected a lot worse, but no. <laughs> All right. I think, uh, you know, whenever I do these podcasts, I ask people for a profile picture that I can put up with the blog post. 
And I think I know what picture I'm going to ask. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to pick me up of a lineup afterwards, but no. but boy, do I look like Spider-Man in that. <laughs> <laughs> That's is that the Raimi suit? Is that what I'm seeing? The what? The, is it called the Raimi suit? Like the the suit from the uh, what's the guy's name? Tobey Maguire. He's he's wearing as Spider-Man. Hmm. I or you don't know. Don't know. I'm, <laughs> I reckon that's my bet. If I were to put money down, I reckon that's the Tobey Maguire era Spider-Man costume. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I, uh, I I should I should know this now that I myself am becoming Spider-Man. So I, yeah, <laughs> you're obviously a fan of spiders. You got to get into the yeah. The <laughs> I was pretty afraid of spiders before I started researching them. Oh really? So how did you start researching them, knowing that? I was interested in vision. Hmm. And um, just vision and animals and was considering a bunch of different labs that were doing mm. cool things and involved vision and sensory ecology in general. And it turns out jumping spiders have really interesting eyes. Yeah. And then, and then at some point I learned that I had to get over my fear of spiders to, <laughs> to do it. it. A lot of people, a lot of people doing spider research come from a spider first direction and they have spider tattoos or pet spiders <laughs> or you know, I've always known that they wanted to do spider things, yeah. but I definitely. So was it actually a fear bad enough that it was difficult to start or was it just a bit, a little bit uneasy? The, uh, first I, I took a spider identification class my mm. first semester. And when they were giving the introductory slides, just showing pictures of slip biters, I had to step outside and call my mom. All right. <laughs> like I wow. just couldn't, I couldn't handle it. Okay. Like I like, a, would, so I had like a, like a full fledged phobia well, and I had to Google how to get over a fear of spiders and did all the steps and everything. I, was that like exposure therapy and things? Yeah. You, you look at you. You read about them. And yeah. Then you look at pictures, and then you look at videos, and then you look at a spider through glass, and then you hold a toy spider, and then mm. you look at a spider without glass, and then you could have a spider crawl in your hand. And uh. at that point, you're like, doing okay. And is this something you knew before that undergrad lecture experience? Oh, this is a grad school lecture experience. This was okay. after I had decided right. to be a spider researcher i still okay. ha- i still had that <laughs> wow so this is i was i was already already in deep by the time that i had that lecture so how many years ago did this whole process becoming comfortable with spiders start it started in 2015 all right so so it's four, four years in yeah four years where in. are we at now with spiders yeah and um for spiders of the size that i usually deal with <laughs> I don't fear any fear, feel any fear at all. Mm. Um, with some of the larger spiders that I do study, I, I will feel uneasy or will sometimes yelp if they get out of their enclosures. Mm. Uh, and like really freaky spiders are still yeah. scary to me, but I, I, I don't really have a phobia at this point anymore. Yeah. What do you think it is about the spiders? I mean, that's the thing about phobias is they're not necessarily rational. Yeah things right yeah it's um no idea yeah Yeah, i don't know but i don't right i think what you said is exactly right it's not rational just as they're spiders Mm. so they're freaky even if i know exactly the level of danger associated with it yeah and i'm not worried about that per se it's it's not like i'm worried about them biting me Mm. in fact i have um 
a colleague of mine who's also afraid of spiders, we both agree that we'd rather have a spider bite our hand than a spider crawl up up the inside of our shirt and not hurt us at all. <laughs> yeah, I kind of, I'm totally fine with snakes, mm-hmm. but they're the one thing where I can understand the, I don't know, almost instinctive distrust of them or something like that. Same. Yeah, and snakes don't freak me out at all, and they should. Yeah. Right? A snake, a snake is way more likely to harm me than a spider yeah. is. But snakes, they, they don't, like, I just have to, snakes are like cars like i know i have to watch out but yeah. I, I don't <laughs> yeah it's something about i feel like i can read an animal's behavior well enough if it's something like a dog <laughs> yeah or an ant or you know something like that but things like snakes they're that expressionless that i don't i'm sure other people can read their behaviors but when i've held snakes and been near snakes and things like that i think they're great but I'm always aware that I don't know if this snake is fine with me being here. I don't know if it's angry. Or if it, like, stole your wallet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's being coy. Yeah. If yeah, it yeah. wants to be my friend. Or, you know, when you do, I don't know if you've ever done, like, the kids' science shows and, you know, someone's got a snake in a bag um, and yeah. that kind of thing. Every now and again, I'll find myself holding a, a weird python. And I know that it's fine because this person, it's their right. pet and they root it and stuff. But then, it, you know, it just starts coiling itself around my neck. And I'm like, is this a is this a friendly coil or is this, is this a, just a little bit cold or is this... I, I, I've always wondered how people are able to yeah. have that be fine and they just know it's going to go. All right. <laughs> That's... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I feel you there. I don't know. <laughs> but we're talking about things that uh, freak us out. Yeah. Yet, I just found out that you do something which... I think is up there with some of the scariest things a human can do. And that is stand up comedy. (laughs) 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 First of all. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Second of all, on, on this topic of it being terrifying, was it terrifying for you when you started? First of all, getting up in front of a crowd of people with a microphone. Yeah. And second of all, the pressure of having to make him laugh. Yeah, I think, uh, yes, it's <laughs> definitely terrifying. Um, I think I'm lucky in that it terrifies me less than the average person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been doing it for about 10 years now mm-hmm. and it doesn't not terrify me yeah. now. It, uh, I'm not even sure it terrifies me less <laughs> than it did at the very beginning. Yeah, I appear more confident on stage, and once I'm once I get in the flow, mm. it's fine. But right beforehand is always yeah super scary. In fact, before a performance, even if I'm prepared and it'll do well, or I expect I'll do well, mm. I always feel way worse than even if I am on stage just bombing and nobody's laughing whatsoever. Mm. Because if nobody's laughing and I'm there, at least I'm already up there. But the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's and there's a difference between being terrified and just having that adrenaline rush of performing and presenting, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about getting in front of people where you, I don't know. It's maybe part of your brain thinks that if they don't like you, they'll literally kill you or something. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but even if you're up there and it goes basically as bad as it can and people are just sitting there silently like and not happy with what you're doing mm-hmm. you're still fine yeah <laughs> you could just still they don't hate you i mm-hmm. mean maybe they hate you but they don't they're not gonna harm <laughs> yeah the you real world anyway. repercussions it's not, of it yeah yeah it's pretty it, that's why i really like it because it's scary but also super low consequence mm. How, yeah, how did you the get into opposite it? Opposite of cars. First. <laughs> <laughs> so how how do where do you start to become a stand-up comic? You just I started. Do it. I started in my uh, first year of uh, uni, mm. um, but I had wanted to do it since I was a little kid. All my right. my godfather is a successful comedian. He's and did. Uh, and is and is a medical doctor, and so he would he would blend those together and do a lot of performances for at, at medical conferences mm-hmm. and things. And how, how successful in that people might have heard of him? Uh, his name's Stu Silverstein, uh, but I think maybe maybe you know, medical doctors <laughs> will have heard of <laughs> him. And he, yeah. he 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 wrote a lot of books called "Laughing Your Way Through the MCATs." um that were that were successful Mm. study prep books and he so since i was little i the the idea of being a stand-up comedian was Mm. on the map because because of him and that you could be that you could have that be something successful it was you know certainly not his main career but it Mm. was i'm already just picturing patch adams (laughs) no that's my go-to reference yeah (laughs) comedy medical doctor yeah so he uh yeah, he's funny. So I, um, and I don't know. I remember when I'm being like a really little kid, and my dad talking to me about d- delivery and timing. Mm. So it it kind of was always something that I had wanted to try. So when I first did it, it didn't feel like a crazy, like a crazy jump, but rather mm. a fulfillment of something I had always been meaning to get to. Yeah, it's great. So your godfather was sort of blending. His work with his comedy. Mm-hmm. Is that something you do? Are you a scientist, c- comedian, ar- arachnologist comedy? Yeah, definitely the boundaries between the two of them have mm. always been leaky, I think. I um, I don't know that I've ever done explicitly tried to make a complete hybrid. Mm. But almost any time I give a presentation, it'll always have jokes, even if I don't set out to have that be the case. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I have given some science presentations that were intended to be funny. Yeah. And I also have lots of references to science in my, in my comedy anyway, even before I was practicing as a scientist. Yeah. I guess there's sort of my vibe. There's lots of material there. Surely you're in. There's tons. There's tons. (laughs) I've struggled with uh, whether or not it counts as science outreach when I'm doing the comedy and talking about science or yeah. if it's or if it's not cuz sometimes I just tell lies <laughs> <laughs> when I'm doing the comedy that's why that's why I think where the boundary yeah is is if I'm <laughs> if, I, if my science is all strictly true then it's a science presentation if it's funny mm. but if I'm saying that humans raised on whale milk can breathe underwater <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah where do you draw the wow line whales can't even breathe underwater <laughs> even though they drink whale milk as babies <laughs> yeah it's and i definitely know that feeling like i realized when i was giving presentations at conferences and stuff as a scientist 
I was I had my priorities all backwards because I was kind of gauging the how well my talk went down by how many laughs I got. Me too. <laughs> Me too. Oh my god. That's the first conference I, conference presentation I gave. I felt absolutely horrible afterwards yeah. because nobody laughed. <laughs> <laughs> and I went out and I was like, wow, it completely bombed. I felt like trash. I was like, people hated this. And I talked to people later. They're like, no, it was fine. Yeah. It's just that my jokes didn't land. But I that I absolutely evaluated my performance based off of yeah. You're judging your based science off based of my, <laughs> my humor, which I think was not not the right way of doing it but now now people tend to laugh at my conference presentations more so i i think i wasn't completely off at thinking yeah. that it wasn't that good but and then on the other side of the spectrum when you're doing sort of public performances that are kind of sciencey it's like yeah we're what what is this strange beast that we're doing because we've done a couple of live podcasts yeah for this and we we pitch it as a comedy event where we get scientists on stage and oh awesome. just let them rip and see what happens and it's great fun but it's like what are what are we doing (laughs) and we call it science outreach but we don't really get all that deep into the science that anyone does because you've got four scientists on stage all they've got the time to do is just go yeah i work on bugs and then the rest is yeah right skimming the surface but yeah but that's kind of that's the best i think yeah well i think it's important to show that science is not elitist yeah. And it's not for, sm- sm- well, there's lots of smart people in it. You right. don't necessarily have to be really smart to do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think including myself, some of the biggest idiots I know are scientists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like myself, high among the ranks of, yeah. of uh, you know, all the people I know who, like, uh, or not all the people I know, but there's a way higher proportion of people who would you know, touch hot pipes knowing that they're going to get burnt. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's as, natural as curiosity, scientists. right? Yeah. Is was, it hot? Yes. Yeah. I think there's, I think there actually maybe even is a level of idiocy that you need to be a scientist. <laughs> like people talk about the smart part, but you kind of have to also have, yeah. have some, something, uh, not, not be playing with a full deck on some levels too. <laughs> And you know, when I think about, I don't know, the people I went to high school with, none of the super smart top marks in their final exams people went to be scientists. They all were a, maybe a little bit more conservative with their career directions. Right. There, uh, are, there are smarter things to do than, yeah. than being a scientist, for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm right there with you, yeah. Yeah, and it's sort of, I don't know, whenever I talk to undergrad students, lots of the times people will I don't know I see this pattern where the students that go on to do postgrad and research and become mm-hmm. scientists again they're never the top high distinction A plus students there's the people that are kind of sitting around the middle but always have that natural curiosity and find more of a personal value in asking interesting questions and right. as opposed to people who are very, very book smart, which means they're probably really good at following instructions, but maybe don't have that creative spark themselves. Yeah. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I agree that it's more about creativity mm. than intelligence. You have to have enough intelligence to do it. Mm. But that's true about anything. You gotta have to, you have to have, you have to have some minimum threshold of intelligence. 
<laughs> but but it's yeah, but it's not like addition but, and subtraction and that sort of stuff. Spelling's yeah, good. not even not even that. Like <laughs> there's calculators for that. There's calculators for that. Yeah, you have to you have to be functional, and then but then if you if you're there, then you could, you could be good. And, well, I mean, I don't know. Again, as I was saying, like a lot of the scientists I know aren't even that functional. So <laughs> you, you just yeah, you have to be curious. That's what it's about. You feel free to name names. I'm sure they'll never listen to this. It's fine. <laughs> no, I'm not thinking about anyone in particular, except for myself. I mean, I, I I can think about the think about the things that I do, and I um just generally yeah, I I think I definitely was raised with the idea that uh, you could. <laughs> You could definitely bo- be both a genius and an idiot yeah. at, the sa- at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's starting to sound like we think very highly of ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah we're definitely those genius idiots genius you hear about. Idiots. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't say I'm necessarily a genius, but I do. I, 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 I do definitely identify as an idiot. <laughs> I'm smart. I'm smart, but also, yeah. I mean, I could. There's the. You know, kind of like calling somebody to find out where your cell phone is kind of situation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've got higher order level things to think about. Yeah, now. yeah. <laughs> uh, so what's brought you to Australia? So you're doing your PhD over at the University of California? That's right. Right. And now uh, you're over here in Australia for a couple of weeks. What are you getting up to? Two weeks. Uh, came here to talk to Mike Kasumafik about our Ludo. Yeah, talking to Mike about our Ludo and about having our Ludo come to the U.S. Okay, because you have a background in education as well. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So you were a school teacher for a while. Yeah, I taught. Um, I was a school teacher for two years at a school called Tilden Preparatory School in California, mm-hmm. in the San Francisco Bay Area, which was uh, an interesting, not exactly unique, but a very rare type of school mm-hmm. where... All of the classes were one-on-one, or almost all of the classes were one-on-one, where there was one teacher, one student, and then the format felt more like tutoring than it did like a typical classroom. Mm. But this was still was their classroom, and each student would have their own individualized schedule. And how many, how many students class- could you get into this school? The school had, I think, about 165 students. So you'd have to have about that roughly that many teachers, right? If it's constant one-on-one. There were, I think, I don't remember the exact numbers, but maybe around 60 teachers. Mm. So just the teachers would spend more hours per day yeah. than the students would. Okay. It took me, talking about the scientist idiot thing, it took me months to figure out how it was possible that there were <laughs> more, <laughs> more students than teachers. <laughs> students go off, have a lunch break, all that type of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's such an interesting, I'd never heard of a school like that before. So it was almost like constant speed dating sort of setup, <laughs> jumping between these one-on-one sessions, right? A little bit. I, unlike speed dating... Maybe like iterated speed dating because we, you know, you'd meet with the same student yeah. two or three times a week for the whole class. Yeah. Um, but it was a really good format. It's, mm. there's a lot that you lose in a giant classroom mm-hmm. where uh, sort of the group dynamics, sort of the, like a typical classroom has lots of just controlling the, 
horde of people and then trying yeah, to get yeah, something yeah. that is uh, a compromise that can at least be good enough for everyone but is not quite ideally suited to anyone. Yeah. But when you're doing one-on-one classes, you really can tailor tailor the education to each student and figure out exactly where they're at and mm-hmm. what they're psyched about and yeah, what I guess parts they need more work on. And it's and you know much more quickly build build a uh, a trusting and cooperative relationship. Mm. You'd never so. have to deal with classroom discipline or yeah those sorts of things. Yeah, right. There there were a few times where there was some equivalence of classroom discipline mm. sort of or students would ask at, uh, act out and um and uh it was in cubicles so every, there was close quarters so if a student mm. especially with like a like a middle school students would sometimes be loud or mm. disruptive to neighboring classrooms classrooms <laughs> cubicles <and> cubicles <laughs> or um or would really not want to focus on the topic so there's 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 some things there but then but then that's still better because you could, you know, instead of having to send somebody out of the class and have them not learn, you could kind of try and get to the root of what's, yeah. what's not working. And it also helped because I, I was certainly disruptive in class okay. growing up. Like I definitely <laughs> yeah. was. A, you could understand where these kids were coming from. Yeah. I yeah. was, I was a simultaneously motivated and problem student. Mm. So, or at least super disruptive. So I, mm. I, um, I have ADHD, and I, I talked about that in my interview, and then they considered that a plus, which I thought was really, right. really lovely, that uh, ADHD and Tourette syndrome. So mm. the, 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 that that those learning differences is something they look for in the teachers. Uh, I think is really special and good. Yeah. Yeah. So. Do you think that gives you extra skills to deal with the students then? Or is it just having a more un- just general understanding of what it's like? definitely the general understanding skills i think i think the i think the the skills stem from the understanding mm. so a lot of the time if somebody's if some sorts of structures aren't working for someone mm. i could could really understand where they're coming from yeah or if certain things like if a student absolutely hates showing their work or taking notes i do too yeah and i know when um i have a kind of my own sense of like when it when it really is valuable Mm -hmm. and like which corners shouldn't be cut after all yeah and like what things i think it it, it, i don't know if the students feel this way but i I at least personally feel more authentic that way Mm -hmm. like when i'm telling somebody to if I'm telling somebody like, oh, you need to show your work, I don't feel like I'm doing it because it's, oh, I know this is what like ought to be done and this is the way it's done. Mm-hmm. I could say it from a pos- position of, oh, like people told me to do this. I hated it. I never did it. And then like years later, I realized that they were right after mm-hmm. all and that I had screwed myself over by not, you know, by trying to do everything in my head or mm-hmm. something like that. And I... um Sometimes, you know, it's that doesn't always <laughs> persuade <laughs> someone, and I'm sure it wouldn't have worked at me on me at that age. Well, yeah, that's what I'm starting to realize. Now dealing with kids, I start saying things back to them that are almost word for word what adults said to me when I was a kid. And <laughs> it's like, well, it didn't work when they said it to me. What am I doing rubbing it back? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think I realized, you know, 
as an adult thinking back on my childhood i really struggled with anxiety and things yeah and then dealing with kids that have anxiety i can see them i go totally understand what you're feeling what you're going through i didn't know how to handle it then so i don't really know <laughs> i can help you deal with it that type of thing yeah yeah Right, and there's plenty of things that I deal with. Like, yeah, I, I, I also have my own issues with anxiety now too, mm. and always have. And so, I, if if a student's having it, like, I could, I could tell them some of the things that work for me. But it's not like I have all the answers. And with ADD too, it still, it still influences my work, and still is yeah. a hindrance for me sometimes accomplishing the goals that I want to do. Yeah, I always writing my thesis is I mean, it takes longer than, for everyone than they expect but mm. but just the amount that i could do when i'm sitting down on a given time is way less than i'd like it to be and i you know, yeah if a student sitting down not wanting to do their stuff like there's only so much i could say because uh, i'm like yeah <laughs> you know i could be like oh no you got to do it you'll feel better if you do or oh you have to and then i'll leave and like you know an hour later, I'll be in the exact same position that they are. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you did that for about two years, mm-hmm. and then after that, did you make the jump to research? Yes, I started grad school right after, right after teaching at that school, and in okay. fact, and in fact, I st- still did some substitute teaching my first mm-hmm. year of my PhD program, and. Um, and since graduating uni, I've been tutoring for um, for my mom's tutoring company, Kessler Tutoring. All right. Yeah, with doing math tutoring primarily. So a lot of the experiences that I'm um, talking about with telling, with talking about showing work mm. to kids and sort of the uh, the things that they struggle with are a lot of those. I'm like my 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 favorite type of educating that I do I mean I, I do teaching assistantships and I did the school teaching but my 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 favorite type of teaching that I do and have done is math tutoring okay yeah that's got like the I don't know it's the stereotype of all stu- subjects is that everybody hates math right how do you break that down to to get through to these kids yeah so my mom's slogan for the company is that math is fun. <laughs> Good, direct. <laughs> yeah, like very, very, very direct. Yeah. Um, and she and I both really like, like, find actual enjoyment with math, and a lot of students can too. And a lot through the tutoring have gotten to the point where they actually do enjoy it when they hadn't before. I think the tutoring format is is especially helpful to that end of getting getting math to be a less hated thing Mm -hmm. because you don't get a grade in tutoring. Mm. You just get a grade in class. So everything that happens there is a, is a much safer space to explore and make mistakes. A lot, a lot of the time that people say they hate math is because they feel they're not good at it. And a lot of times people feel they're not good at math it's not time, not because they're lacking any intrinsic skills, but because they have really specific knowledge gaps that just maybe one year, five years ago, they had, they had a teacher who just taught it in a bad way to the class or didn't mm-hmm. connect or wasn't, or, you know, could have been a bad year for the student or something. If you, you miss 
you miss it. Math is so cumulative that if you if you miss something, they don't in the in the way math class is done, they don't typically go back and remedy mm-hmm. the things that are, everything's built on. So so anytime something that is expected students will know is referenced, then there's yet another thing that doesn't click or feels impossible. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to do with the intrinsic difficulty of math or or any any lack of ability by the student. It's just a lack of context that they have. And so a lot of the times getting them getting them to the point where they where they have all of the tools that they need to be able to do the math that's in front of them can could allow them to enjoy it a lot more because then it becomes like a game that they could win. Mm. It's uh I'm trying to think of like a great analogy right now, but it's well, it's it was, like you're it's like you're playing basketball with one shoe or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely how I felt in high school maths, just being given these problems about calculating you know, home loan interest rates, and me sitting there going, "Why? I don't care." Yeah. <laughs> but do you think that doing this tutoring at the same time as being a PhD researcher gives you like a context that you can bring to the table and show how you use it in your own? research in that way absolutely yeah. yeah i definitely i definitely do say that i a lot of the times mm. i am able to give specific examples of when the things i'm teaching are things that i personally find useful in my day-to-day life mm-hmm. there's also times when there are things that i just don't think anybody ever uses there are some things that they teach in math class that are just things that they teach in math class and I maybe were useful like 50 or 70 years ago, but probably don't have any context in which anyone would ever use them outside of class. Yeah. And those, those can be harder to sell, right? You can't be like, Oh, do this. Like you're going to, you're going to, this will actually really come in handy. Mm. It's like, Oh, do this because this is what there is in class. But I think, I think the point of math class shouldn't be thinking, oh, I'm acquiring these skills in math so that I could do math with them, but rather learning the just sort of generalized problem solving skills that math has. Like, oh, if you, if you, you know, you've got such and such toolkit and you have to, and you know what you're trying to do. Like, how mm-hmm. do you, how do you use what you have to get where you want? That's something that's more generally useful, even if you never knew math and yeah. what you in what you end up doing in your life. So that's when I think it. That's what I think the value of teaching it is less so because you could just you could just get your computer to do math for you. Yeah, I mean, it's. I feel like as an adult looking back at my math education, especially as you know, a scientist hmm. that has to use math every now and again realizing how important it is how powerful it is how interesting it is to see how numbers behave and look back on my maths education and i think how could they get that wrong like how couldn't they show that problem solving side of it the the game side of it you know finding a solution to puzzles you know exactly it is the keys to the universe right it is a game it is it, it has it has every structure it is exactly structured like a game and it should be treated more like a game than mm. it's 
it just is so stigmatized. It's so, it's just been socialized to be so associated with people's ide- uh, ideas of their own intelligence. Hmm. Right, like, oh, if you if you're good at math, then that means you're smarter. Or like, you know, like, oh, people are told, and you know, and like, especially girls are told that they're not explicitly, but like by society that they won't be good at math, and it's and it's terrible, and it just like becomes this, and students, are, it's like it ends up being like the most competitive class because it's it's graded like always so quantitatively and rigidly. Mm-hmm. And the idea of, oh, you did it right or you did it wrong is is way deeper in math than in anything else. But then but then that ends up, yeah, as you get higher in math, that ends up not even being true that you could do it, that there could be like plenty of right ways of doing something mm-hmm. or there could be plenty of wrong ways of doing things that are wrong in the sense that they don't give you the answer but are right in that the you could be applying your problem solving skills in a really productive way that um, a lot of times I'll in tutoring, I'll have my students, I'll see my students going down something that doesn't get them to the right answer and then just erasing all of it. Mm. And I I do try and tell them don't erase it, that it's better to just strike it through and not erase it. So you could see all the ways that you went for it and didn't get to where you're going. Cause that's, Mm. that's part of it. And that should be something that, like you're doing a good job if you if you are really thinking something through and trying to do it and you just don't get to the right place. It sounds like this could be the conversation we were having a couple of minutes ago, but you don't need to be smart to be a scientist. <laughs> you yeah. just have to be persistent. And you just have to be persistent. You have to try things. And like you have to, it's because all these tests, people are just evaluated so cruelly on math that it, it strips away all the fun mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, well, math is like science in that way, too, that, you know, science is all about, like, trying things that just straight up don't work. Like my, you don't <laughs> have to put on the red light experiment. Yeah. Did not lead to any scientific insights whatsoever, but it was still. You need to go through It was that. still valuable. Yeah. And, like, the, the things that I did discover have to do with, like, all stem from me having tried that. Mm. Yeah, particularly during a PhD, I feel like everyone's common experience is the first Two years, maybe four years, whatever, yeah. <laughs> are spent doing the wrong things, right. following dead leads, doing experiments that don't work. Right. And that's part of it. And it's not taught as being part of it in our culture. Mm. There's just um, every, like, um, failure is so stigmatized, mm. even though it's such an, in, like, such an important part of success it's like the, the idea of succeeding without failing is ridiculous mm. and i think that's a, like a super important part of education is having is thinking of more about the the process than the results and also being able to find joy in the process of trying to understand things or trying to solve problems instead of having the problems be truly problems in your life mm. I feel like I could also relate this to doing stand-up comedy (laughs) where I imagine you have to bomb a lot before you learn what to do right. (laughs) That's absolutely true. Yeah. Right. I, um, actually I was talking to a friend of mine just a few weeks ago who was telling me how they had been struggling with social anxiety and I, Mm. I told them to go 
try and do stand up without practicing. Yeah. Just have nobody laugh at their jokes and just <laughs> have a distinctly awkward and very painful social situation that has no repercussions at all. Yeah. Cause that's the thing about that's the difference between stand up and math class is you you go up and you do and you could do stand up horridly and you could just get it back up again and mm. it's completely fine. And mm. then you you could know that you you could know that you could grow and you have space to do that even though it's like super painful. But in math class they because the way it's structured it's like you could then you could like fall behind and then it's just like things just cumulatively can get worse for you which is which is awful that's another thing i liked about the uh about the teaching at the one-on-one schools if if there's something that is like a like a knowledge gap for a student you could just go back fix it and then just go forward mm. and then it just is much better it's funny, I feel like you do hear a lot about people who struggle with things like social anxiety that end up really excelling in things that seem like an extroverted activity, like you know, performance art or stand-up or whatever. But right. I guess, it's, do you think it's because of that? It's because it's something you can control and it's something you can workshop and something you can problem-solve? Maybe. I mean, I also definitely... I widely considered i mean i think of myself as very extroverted mm. and i also definitely have social anxiety so it's yeah so they're definitely they're definitely not mutually exclusive at all yeah maybe it is uh that right that it's low consequence and it's like you know that like you could just go out there and i i, I do like it stand up is, is in its own way is is really forgiving in that there when, once you go up there's an expectation mm. around it that you totally could fail <laughs> <laughs> everybody right? kind of like wants if to you if you just go if you're doing a music performance right like people don't expect someone yeah. to go up and play horribly right you expect people to to do an all right job mm. but then when a comedian goes up the thought i think a lot of the time is like okay now prove to me that you don't suck yeah um and and that's kind of nice because if you just go up there and then you don't prove that you don't suck, then, you know, nobody thinks less of you. Just, <laughs> <laughs> you just didn't prove of rock. Yeah. You're, you're, you're on par. Yeah. It's you're fun. on par. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny. It's, uh, it's something that I've definitely found doing these podcasts and things. I've always identified as being quite introverted and quiet, mm-hmm. but I'll quite happily get up in front of a crowd of people and talk into a microphone. Yeah. And people that maybe knew me as a younger person would see that and go, really? You? <laughs> but it's a it's a different interaction. Yeah, it is. The larger a crowd that's in front of me, typically the more comfortable I'll feel. Mm. Feel, um, if I'm practicing a presentation to one person, I'll feel so nervous. But if I'm, <laughs> but if I'm just even giving a, giving a practice or giving an uh, ill-formed presentation to like two dozen people, it'll feel like way more comfortable. Mm. I don't know why that is. That's certainly not everybody feels that way, but no. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> no, I understand. Yeah. Well, if people want to see your comedy, they can yeah. jump online, right? Yes. 
so yeah just if anyone wants to see my comedy just search benji kessler comedy on youtube and mm -hmm. then my videos will come right up i also have a i also have a facebook fan page mm -hmm. which is just also my name benji kessler comedy mm -hmm. and you could also follow me on twitter at benji kessler on brand this yeah. is good yeah it's all on brand yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you know they could also check out your google scholar you can, yeah or you whatever, can check you know. out my google scholar same name <laughs> uh everything's under benji kessler got research up there you could um uh check out my tutoring if you live in <laughs> the east bay area in california um or if anybody wants to be a math student. Yeah. Go yeah. for advice. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. This has been great, Benji. Thanks, Thanks so, much. so much. No worries. Enjoy the rest of your time in Australia too. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. No worries. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. You can find us online at InSitruScience.com. We're on social media at InSitruScience. If you want, you can support us. Go to patreon.com slash InSitruScience. Thanks again for listening. And we'll see you next time. Yeah.